The following has been recorded at Cairn University. Any reproduction of this recording without the express permission of the university is prohibited. Thank you very much. It is great to be here with you all. If you have a Bible with you, you could open it up to Luke chapter 11. We'll get to that shortly. But during my sociology class that I had here, I had to do a family history project. Maybe some of you are still doing that. One of my dad's cousins was able to send him uh, a booklet that his mom had written of her recollection of the family history. And she had a section in there where she talked about Thanksgiving as the uh, favorite family holiday. Now, her and my grandfather had grown up on a farm in New Jersey. And she described how during the Depression era, there would be random men who would come by the farm looking for a day's work in exchange for food for the day and maybe a place to sleep in the barn. She said that on Thanksgiving, one of the adults in the house, there were several generations there, would go out and bring some of these men in, as well as go to the church and have the church send orphans and elderly over to the home. In her words, it wasn't enough to just have food for themselves. The Thanksgiving holiday really meant something when it was shared with other people who needed a friendly place to be for a while. But I wonder, how would you or your family respond to a man you did not know coming up to your door and asking to do odd jobs in exchange for food and a place to sleep? It's a different kind of world that we live in these days, isn't it? Now, maybe if this guy had a truck and tools, reviews on Yelp or references, and insurance, you might be willing to hire him for the day. And if you did that, you probably wouldn't have a problem feeding him lunch either. That's not that big of a deal. But spending the night with your family? That doesn't sound so likely. Well, what if he showed up at your family's house at midnight? College life is a little bit different, but at your family home, if someone showed up ringing the doorbell at midnight, they had better have a pretty good explanation for doing so. It takes a lot of nerve to ring a doorbell at midnight. Well, in our text that we're going to read today, we're going to see a man who goes to a friend's house at midnight asking for food because another friend has come to his house while on a journey late at night, and he has nothing to set before him. And as we read and talk about this text, we will see that there are cultural differences in hospitality expectations, but the important thing to realize is that this whole text is Jesus teaching us about prayer and the kind of reception that God's people can expect when they come to him in prayer. So let's read Luke 11. 1 through 13, and just a heads up, I'm going to change the translation just a little bit in verse 8. This is God's word. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins 
For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, even if he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his shamelessness, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more? Will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Amen. Praise God for His Word to us. Now, if I sum up this whole section in just a single sentence or big idea, I would say that God is your Heavenly Father. You can and should come to Him at any time for anything and everything you need. One more time. God is your Heavenly Father. You can and should come to him at any time for anything and everything you need. And if you walk away with only that today, you will have valuable truth that can be applied to your life. And if truly applied, I believe, will transform your life. But there is so much treasure here, and so we're going to continue on looking at this passage and see what we can learn to reinforce that big idea. And it will do so under the following three headings. First, teach us to pray. Second, shameless friends, but confident sons and daughters. And third, the best fathers give the best gifts. First heading is teach us to pray. It is significant that Jesus, who is God in the flesh, the divine Son of God, spends so much time in prayer. Even if we limit ourselves just to Luke's gospel here, we will see Jesus praying at his baptism in chapter 3, after healing people in chapter 5. He's praying all night before selecting the 12 apostles in chapter 6. He's praying, giving thanks before feeding the 5,000, praying before Peter confesses him as the Christ, and at the transfiguration all in chapter 9. He's praying at the return of the 70 in chapter 10, and then here before teaching the Lord's Prayer. Later in the Gospel, you see him praying before blessing the little children. At the Last Supper, he is praying for Peter's faith. When Satan demands to sift him as wheat, he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane for the forgiveness of those crucifying him. His dying breath is a prayer 
committing his spirit into the Father's hands. And then after the resurrection, he is praying before eating with the disciples and as he blesses them before he ascends back to the Father. Jesus is a man of prayer. And a significant aspect of what prayer is is that it is a means that God has given for us to commune, to communicate in fellowship with him. And Jesus, having enjoyed a perfect relationship with the Father from eternity past, as the second person of the Trinity, was acutely aware of his need for and desired that fellowship during his earthly ministry. And that is why we see him so often in prayer, particularly around momentous events in his earthly ministry. And so the disciples see Jesus praying. They see the works that he's doing. They see the intimacy of his relationship with God. They see him draw strength and peace from prayer. And one of them says, Jesus, teach us to pray. We want some of that too. Well, how will Jesus respond to requests like that? He could say, just talk to God. It doesn't really matter what you say. He could provide a multi-session workshop on the mechanics of prayer. Say such and such this many times. Make sure to include three scripture references. Use that ACTS acronym. And make sure to pray for two things for other people for every one thing you pray for yourself. How does he actually respond? He does give them a model prayer. But more than just a model or the mechanics of prayer, he actually goes on to teach them the attitude of prayer. So your attitude and conversation will be informed by who you're speaking to. You'll speak one way when talking to a baby, and in a very different way when at a job interview, if you want the job, that is. (laughs) And this is how it is with prayer. Who we are talking to informs the proper attitude for prayer. And the model prayer that Jesus gives us begins, Father, Father, hallowed be your name. Now that word hallowed means to be set apart. And when we say this, we're recognizing that God is entirely unique and set apart in all the universe. We are not communicating among equals when we pray. Whatever honor or all that we might have before people of power or influence, that should be nothing compared to what we have before God. And yet this unparalleled one is to be approached as Father. And that's the point that the whole rest of the passage is driving home. This takes us to the second heading, shameless friends but confident sons and daughters. Now, the main parable of our passage is the parable of the friend at midnight in verses 5 through 8. And I want to tell you that most take this parable to be teaching about persistence in prayer. And while I do believe that other parts of Scripture teach us to be persistent in prayer, I don't think that that's the main thrust of this parable. The way that this story is often understood is that a man goes to a friend's house at midnight, knocks on the door, and asks for food. 
The sleeping homeowner refuses, but the one outside keeps on knocking and keeps on asking, and finally wears the sleeper out so that he gets up and gives him whatever he needs so he'll go away. But if you look at verses 5 through 8, you will not see any knocking taking place, and you will not see a repeated request either. These ideas are actually imported from verses 9 and 10 but they don't occur within the parable itself. And I'll also suggest to you that when we understand this properly, you will not even find a refusal in the parable. Let me explain. Jesus begins the parable with the words, which of you or who among you? Jesus does this 11 times in the Gospels. And in every case, it sets up a situation where the answer is obvious and assumed. And in every other case, the answer is an obvious no one. You can see this happen right in verses 11 to 13. Which father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? Obvious answer. No one would do that. Now, we do need to understand some cultural differences. We do like hospitality in our day. It's nice when someone's willing to open their home and entertain to steward the gifts that God has given them for the benefit of others. But today, it's generally expected that you would invite me to come to dinner, and I wouldn't just show up at your house expecting to be fed and given a place to sleep for the night. And if I showed up at your house at midnight asking for food for a friend who came to my house you'd probably wonder, what are you doing? Why didn't you just take them to Wawa? (laughs) But there's no Wawa's in Jesus' day. And there's no Holiday Inn Express either. There's actually very few inns. And they're often not the safest options for people to stay in. It wouldn't be unheard of for people to travel later in the day into the night to avoid the heat. And hospitality expectations were that A guest could expect a gracious host to provide for their needs. And remember, there's no cell phones to even let someone know that you're coming. So as Jesus sets up this parable, and he says, which of you in this situation would go to a friend and hear a friend reply, leave me alone? In Jesus' day, the answer is obvious. No one would do that. It would be shameful for you to not provide for a traveling guest in need. And it would be shameful for a friend to turn you away. So verse 8 isn't saying he won't do it because he's your friend. He'll only do it because you're annoying. It's saying even if the unthinkable happened and a friend responded in this way, then certainly he'll still give you what you need because of your shamelessness of coming at midnight so he can get back to bed. What does this have to do with prayer? Jesus tells the disciples to pray to God as their father. And then he tells them a parable where they know that they could expect to be helped by a friend. Well, if a friend will help you in your need, how much more Will your father help? This parable 
is teaching us about the character of God as our Father and how that informs our attitude when we approach Him in prayer. And the point is that your Father is so much better than your friend. See, I think persistence in prayer is a good thing. We've already described how Jesus was persistent in prayer. But if we say that this parable is teaching about persistence in prayer, that communicates something about the character of God. And in this context, the reason for persistence would be, well, he won't answer because he's your father, but if you pester him and bother him enough, you'll wear him out and he'll give you what you need. But what kind of father is that? And far worse, what kind of God is that? The point is, your father isn't like your friend. He's better. You see, I like you guys, and I would be happy to help you in any way I can. But you could bother me. If you showed up at my house at midnight, ringing my doorbell, and didn't think to call or text, I'd find that to be pretty odd. If you did it a second time, I'd find it inconsiderate. By the third time, I will be thoroughly bothered. My own children can bother me. Why is that? It's because I'm human. I have limited answers, limited resources, limited energy, limited time, limited patience. I have limited compassion and generosity. None of that is true of your heavenly Father. He is not limited. You literally cannot bother him. He exists above time. There's no midnight for him. He doesn't sleep. You never need to rouse him or wear him down. See, when we speak of persistence in prayer, it should be an expression of our dependence on him, our faith in him, and our grasp of who he is. If Jesus had begun the Lord's prayer, God, hallowed be your name, then maybe we would consider that one so holy and set apart should be approached rarely and only when in dire need. But because the prayer begins, Father, approaching him in your need is actually a way that his name is hallowed by you because you come to him in your need beyond all others because of your faith in him, believing that he's willing and able to provide for our needs, we come confidently as sons and daughters at any time for anything and everything that we need. And Jesus is saying to us here, this is what your father's like. He's approachable. He's available. And he's dependable. And he continues in verse 9. And, or so I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. 
ask, seek, knock. All of these are imperatives or commands, all in the present tense would suggest an ongoing habit of prayer. Not a habit of empty ritual, but a habit born out of reliance on your heavenly Father because of your relationship to him. Now, Jesus says, everyone who asks receives. How should we understand that? Because if you've prayed for any significant period of time, you've asked for something and not received it. It's not a blank check. What would the context suggest to us? When we look at the Lord's Prayer, we see a prayer for God's name to be regarded as holy, followed by a prayer for daily bread, symbolic of that which is needed, as opposed to just a wish list. We see prayer for the coming of God's kingdom, then prayer for forgiveness, and a prayer for protection. Actually, those things sound a lot like the kind of things that you could expect from a good father. What's needful? Forgiveness? and protection. A lot of kids wouldn't agree with me, but any parent knows that a good father doesn't give their kids everything that they want when they want it. A good father will provide what is absolutely needful, and I think that you can absolutely rely upon God to give you what you need when you need it. But the thing about children is that they often don't know what they need. Sometimes they want things that are harmful to them. And in those times, a good father will say, no. Now, I'm between 28 and 34 years older than my children. And those 28 to 34 years have afforded me an expanded perspective. As a father, I've often said no to things, not because they were bad, but because I was actually looking at things more than 10 minutes into the future. I knew that something better was coming. Well, if my additional 28 to 34 years have given me that kind of an expanded perspective, how much more is that the case with a God who had no beginning? I had plans and dreams that I was working towards in my early 20s. I was asking, but I wasn't receiving. I was seeking, I was applying effort to it, but not finding. I would knock on doors that might seem to open a little bit, and then they'd be slammed shut and the deadbolt would be latched. The limited perspective of my early 20s couldn't see was that all of those no's eventually did lead to an open door, and on the other side was my wife and children. I came here as a phys ed major. It was those no's that opened another door and has afforded me the privilege to talk to you today about your approachable, available, and gloriously dependable Heavenly Father. He is the best Father. And the best fathers give the best gifts. This is our last heading. So I don't know what your dad was like or is like, and I don't know what your relationship with him is or was like. 
For many people, their relationship with their dad can have a profound influence on their relationship with God and how they viewed him as father. And sadly, for those who had broken relationships with their father, the idea of God as a father can be extremely difficult. When I said earlier that fathers were better than friends, the people who have had this struggle, they, they were probably thinking, no, friends are better than fathers. I think it's important that we acknowledge that pain and brokenness. It's really an injustice that they experience. And I'm truly sorry if that has been your experience. If that's not your experience, then praise God. But I would be fairly certain that you know someone who has had that experience. So I want to try and kind of reorient the way that we think of God as Father in a way that I hope will be encouraging. Maybe start on the path to some healing and equip you to help others who struggle. See, many of Jesus' parables, we see metaphors. The kingdom is like a man sowing seed. These are metaphors or similes. Uh, in Luke 13, you can see Jesus say, what, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It's like a mustard seed. Well, obviously, it's not actually a mustard seed. Jesus considers a similarity and then makes a comparison. But it is essential for us to understand that when God reveals himself as Father, it is emphatically not a metaphor. God doesn't think, how should I reveal myself to these people and then scan the reaches of the created order and say, oh yeah, fathers, that'll be a good one. God is Father. From eternity past, the Trinity has existed as one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He always has been and he always will be Father. Not like a father, he is Father. He's the standard. And so it actually works the other way around. Because we humans are created in his image, we are to be like God. And as men, in their unique expression of God's image, are to be like him as fathers. But with the entrance of sin into the world, and each one of us being a sinner ourselves, this means that every single one of our dads has fallen far short of God's glory as fathers. But whether you had a good dad or a bad dad, there is available to you a perfect father. He's not just loving. He is love. He doesn't just have a light of goodness about him. He is light, and in him there is no darkness. He's not more or less truthful. He is truth. He is not subject to good days or bad days or shifting temperaments. He is changeless, has no limits. He doesn't even just have characteristics. All of his characteristics exist as perfections. And yet, somehow he's still approachable, available, 
and fully dependable. So I would encourage you, whatever your relationship with your dad is like, don't look to see God through the lens of your dad. I do not want my children to do that. I hope that I can reflect the light of God's love to them, but I do not want to be the lens through which God is filtered to them. They'll miss him. They'll miss his glory. And they will misunderstand his love. I want my children to see God through the unfiltered lens of the gospel. This heading is called The Best Fathers Give the Best Gifts. And you know, the best gifts aren't puppies or ponies or cars or vacations. Anything money can buy. Our parents can give us good gifts like love and affirmation or raising us up to know the Lord. But the best father has the best gifts. Did you see in our text that change that took place? There's this little parable about a son asking his dad for a fish or an egg, and then all of a sudden there's this quantum leap that says your heavenly father will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. The reason that these disciples, ordinary men, and the reason that you and I, ordinary men and women, can make a crazy request like this and have confidence to approach God as our Father at any time for anything and everything we need is only because of the Son, Jesus. It's our relationship with and union with Him. Jesus says in John 14, 6, No one comes to the Father except through me. For all those who have turned to him in faith and repentance, you will be united to the Son as sons and daughters. And then and only then is God really your heavenly Father. But then look and see the love that this Father has to give you the best gifts, the gift of the Son, to die in your place, absorbing the wrath that your sin deserves, the gift of the Holy Spirit, to dwell inside you, transforming you throughout your life into the image of the Son. And finally, the gift of eternal life in the presence of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit forever. Through faith in Jesus, you can and should come to God, your Heavenly Father, confidently at any time for anything and everything you need. Because as Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own Son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Let's pray. Our Father, maker of heaven and earth, who does not sleep or slumber, who keeps watch day and night over our going out and coming in, who keeps our life, hallowed be your name. You are our help. Give us each day our daily bread. May we turn to you always for what is needed for the body and confidently ask for your greater gifts and your spirit so work in us that we would be witnesses pointing others to you through Jesus. We ask it in his name for the advancement of his kingdom. Amen.